Welcome to the Cohort Sisters podcast, where we bring to life the stories, struggles, and successes of Black women navigating doctoral degree programs and their lives beyond the degree. I'm your host and the founder of Cohort Sisters, Dr. Ijama Kola. Cohort Sisters is an online global network empowering Black women pursuing doctoral degrees by providing resources, mentorship, and community. For more information, please visit our website at cohortsisters.com. You're listening to episode 13 of the Cohort Sisters podcast. In this week's episode, I chat with Dr. Norelle Edwards, who received her PhD in English with a focus on Black diaspora literature from the University of Maryland College Park. Dr. Edwards' work and scholarship centers around Black identity, cultural memory, and social justice, and she has worked in a variety of academic and non-academic spaces both during and after her program. Currently, she is a Chancellor's Postdoctoral Fellow at Texas Christian University, as well as the Director of Communications for the Next Step Forward Initiative, a New York-based grassroots organization focused on making progress to eradicate systemic racism. Let's get into our conversation. Yeah, so welcome to the Cohort Sisters podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Edwards. Excited to hear more about your journey, your story, especially kind of around working in the academy, but also having all of these external interests. As someone who also is doing the same, that's super interesting to me as well. So thanks again for being here. And maybe we can just start off by you introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and some of the things that you like to do. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I'm Narelle Edwards. Recently became Dr. Edwards um, in yes. 2019. <laughs> I finished. <laughs> Woo, and, you know, for anybody who knows about PhD programs, it can be very, very hard, you know, to actually get out of them. So very, you know, very grateful for those who helped me, you know, find and leave a pathway out. So I did my PhD in 20th and 21st century Black diaspora literature. I've always loved reading, loved books. I'm from Nourishell, New York, which is a suburb right outside of New York City, really close to the Bronx. You know, funny, I actually, senior year of high school, did this gently used book drive where we collected like 2,000 books. Um, it was called Literature for the Little. It's funny, I had always imagined that I was going to work for a nonprofit, and I kind of got my PhD like very haphazardly. <laughs> I basically was in college and found out about all these programs that were pipelines to, you know, diversify the professoriate. And I was sort of like, oh, will you pay me to sort of like improve my CV? Well, why not? Right? Like, <laughs> this pays way better than this awful job I have at Payless or, you know, the mall or, you know. Wait, can I interrupt you? Yeah. Payless just took me back to my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I have not thought about Payless in so long. I'm just, I just have to insert that because you really just brought back fond memories of my entire childhood. <laughs> I mean, the BOGOs were fire, right? I mean, thank you for the BOGOs. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, although, you know, I did get a great discount at Payless that you cannot get through your, you know, your academic stipend, but I digress. <laughs> That's kind of how I ended up sort of like on the academic track, really like, you know, accidentally. But yeah, I love reading, writing, you know, painting and art a little bit. These are actually my paintings on the wall. 
from Wine and Paints back when I used to do that in the oh, they're beautiful the times. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think exercising. I used to play volleyball. I was on my high school volleyball team. That's actually also where you know I sort of like became really close friends with Nicole, who we know in common. We played volleyball together. So always had like a real like diversity of interests and always kind of like love to learn, explore new things. I took French in high school and college and ended up weaving it into my dissertation because I was kind of like determined to learn another language. I always kind of wanted a more, I guess, nuanced and complex identity than I thought than what I thought I had. <laughs> thought it was so cool, you know, people who grew up in new multiple languages. Yeah, those people are super cool. So I actually assume, wrongfully assume, potentially, you can correct me if I'm wrong. When I saw that your dissertation was partially in French, that you've done a lot of work in French literature, I assume that you were Haitian. And I don't know Everyone why. Does. Yeah, I was like, oh, so you know French like fluently because the rest of us took French in high school and we just moved on with our lives. Like we did not do dissertations in French or study French literature. So yeah, I, I wrongfully made that assumption. But I'm also glad to hear that I'm not the only one who thinks that. Yeah, people always are like, oh, I see you do work on Haiti. Are you Haitian? And I'm like, actually, I'm not. <laughs> you know, what's really funny. So I have a lot of family from the Caribbean from Jamaica, but I am kind of like estranged from that side of my family for the most part. And so I've got this sort of like weird, I guess, like Caribbean identity longing. And because I'm so interested in language, I was sort of like, how can I bring these things together and can keep up these French skills? And so that's kind of how I stumbled upon doing my work in Haiti and, you know, sort of reading things in French related to my dissertation work. I also studied abroad in France in college in Paris. So I really kind of was just trying to like really aggressively trying to keep that going. You know, what's funny is when my parents, my parents have long been divorced, but when I was really little and my father and my mother still live together, I remember the first time hearing my father speak in Patois and I was like, what is this? (laughs) Like, what are, what are you doing? And it's so cool. And like, will you teach me? And he was like, nah, like that's, that's broken English. Like, you don't need to know, like, don't you worry about it. And I think that that was like this moment where I was like, wow, like I too (laughs) want to be able to like switch between languages. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that that, like that kind of, that seed is what got me sort of like, okay, like I want to be able to do that or to the extent that I can, it's not as easy when you sort of like you know, don't grow up in a culture that you're, you know, practicing all the time with family and things like that. But still, I, you know, I tried to do what I could. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So can you talk a little bit more about what your dissertation was about? Sure. So my dissertation was about the memory of the Duvalier dictatorship in Haiti. I basically, so I had taken a independent study with a Caribbean professor, Merle Collins, and she was really amazing. She's from Grenada. And I learned about the Duvalier dictatorship, you know, while working with her. And I was sort of just really fascinated by the idea that there was kind of this trauma there that had not been addressed. So for those who don't know, you know, the Duvalier dictatorship is like a 29-year father-son dictatorship in Haiti that was from the 50s up to like 1986 when the son was exiled to France. And so the thing that really intrigued me was the son's exile to France, where he's sort of, you know, in France, chilling, right? Like you just supposedly steal millions of, you know, millions of dollars from your government. You're a part of this, you know, regime that has, you know, caused so much exile and repression. And then you can show up to France and just kind of blend in. Meanwhile, other, you know, immigrants from Francophone countries are getting pushed out who are poor. And that just really fascinated me. 
I had read a couple of novels where they sort of like mentioned something about Duvalier or the dictatorship that were set in France. And I was just kind of thinking about like, what must it be like to flee somewhere and then find the kind of like the thing that you're fleeing in the new place that you're at, right? Like, whoa, I thought I got away from you and here you are <laughs> here, like where I tried to escape you from. So that really kind of like got me in motion thinking about kind of like Haitian migrants in new cities trying to adapt to kind of like, you know, issues of immigration, you know, assimilation, prejudice, xenophobia, but then also being in these places that are supporting, you know, or sort of like negligent around the crimes and atrocities that happened, you know, in their home country. Because I also had a chapter on New York that looked at kind of like, you know, because the U.S. very much was very entangled with Haiti. I mean, it has been for a long time, you know, has occupied Haiti in the early 20th century, but particularly during the 90s when, you know, Haitian immigrants were fleeing to, you know, the U.S., there's quite a lot going on there. And Edwidge Danica, who I wrote, who's in one of my chapters, she's also got a book called The Duke Breaker, where there's a part where someone who was an ex-Tantan and that's one of the sort of like death squads where a girl sort of thinks that she sees him, someone who's an ex-Tantan Makut, and also kind of thinks about you know, the sort of like the complexity of being in a community where it's unclear, like who are victims and perpetrators in terms of, you know, past violence and kind of being in the same place, right? Because both immigrate to New York or both immigrate to France, right? And they're kind of living in the same space. And, you know, it's just complicated. So yeah, (laughs) that was the project. That is so fascinating. That is so fascinating. So I want to learn more about your doctoral journey, but before we do, let's talk about what you're currently doing now. So you're currently doing a postdoctoral fellowship. Can you talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing at TCU, what kind of research you're currently working on, and any work that you might be doing outside of the postdoc? Yes. So I'm currently at Texas Christian University. Even how I came to be there is like a wild ride. I had originally applied last January. And they wanted me to come for like a job to Texas. And so maybe around March, they were like, hey, we want to fly you out, blah, 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 your top candidate. And then, you know, very slowly it was like, that was maybe like the week before everyone started to be like, oh, we can't be in person anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And so then slowly the job talk was turned from in person to on Zoom. And then there was a hiring freeze. And so it was kind of like, okay, you can't do it at all. And, you know, we'll try to circle back, but it was not clear, you know, when or if that might happen. So luckily, you know, I had other opportunities lined up. And in that time, I started a position with the Georgetown University's Prison and Justice Initiative, which is Georgetown University's sort of like hub for any programs they do in prisons, as well as re-entry programs. And so that was really exciting and really great work because, you know, I'm very interested in advocacy. And then in October, TCU came back and was like, hey, we're, you know, reopening this position. You were a top candidate. We still want you to kind of like go through this. And at first I was like, eh, I don't know. I'm not sure if I really want to do that. I, you know, I'm pretty happy at Georgetown. And I've always been someone where I was never really kind of like set or hell-bent on being an academic. I'm sure, as you know, when you're in academia, people are very like, this has got to be the path. There are no other options. I will go where I need to go. And I kind of just never felt that way. I was kind of like, maybe, maybe not, you know, if it works, it works, if it doesn't, it doesn't. And I also just am interested in whatever is going to best suit me and all of my interests and kind of like where I'm trying to go. But what compelled me about the postdoc 
was that, you know, I really would have a lot of flexibility to pursue my own research and publication. And that was some thought at Georgetown, like busy doing programming. Who knows a great opportunity for that? And I'm only teaching like a one-one course. The rest of my time is my own to, you know, do research or whatever that else I'm doing. And they agreed to let me start remote. So although the postdoc is in Texas, I still live in my apartment in Maryland outside of DC. I'm probably going to do the fall in Texas. But yeah, so it really just was great. And Georgetown, you know, also offered to kind of like work with me in terms of like potentially coming back after the postdoc. So I was like, all right, you know, I should just like take this leap and, you know, see how I might, you know, build myself professionally and in my publication and research. And so I've really been focusing on just, you know, writing more articles, some advocacy, and then trying to figure out the process of, you know, creating a manuscript and a proposal for academic publishers. I submitted an abstract to do kind of like an article on on experimentation. There's a novel I just read called Lakewood, which I very much recommend. That kind of basically the premise is is a young African-American college girl who drops out of college to be part of these like experiments that pays money. And it kind of really just has a great kind of like, I think, modern take on the connection to the history and legacy, you know, experimentation on African-Americans, distrust of medical institutions. I think what with COVID, it really kind of fits in well, right? Because we're seeing so much anxiety about that right now. And that is, you know, couched in the the idea of the genre, the Afro-Gothic. So it's kind of all the journal, the special edition will be about the Afro-Gothic specifically, which is kind of like this interesting blend, right, of like gothic themes and attributes with sort of like African-American literature. So you think about obsessions with the past, about kind of like, you know, the gothic has a kind of like grotesque obsession with pain. I mean, if you think about, you know, Black people, there's unfortunately so much pain in our our sort of like shared history, you know, in the U.S., across the diaspora, and, you know, the body, all of that kind of weaves in. So that's an article I'm going to be working on. I'm going to be submitting something on Hurston, Neil Hurston in Haiti. I've got a lot of background, you know, in Haiti. And then, <laughs> like the list never ends, I've been doing a lot of police reform work back home in New Rochelle, New York. So basically, near Shell had a police-involved shooting. Kamal Flowers, may he rest in peace, was killed by an officer last year. Literally two days after the city had its biggest protest of anti-police brutality. And Nirvana has an officer discharged a gun in seven years. So, you know, it feels a little strange, right? Like oddly coincidental. And so Nirvana... Basically, Governor Cuomo has a initiative that demands that anybody in New York, any, you know, municipality or what have you in New York that has a police department has to submit like this reform plan, I believe, in order to get funding. And so Nurshell has been working on this reform plan and they, you know, got together a police committee or, you know, committee of, you know, community members to, you know, bring forth recommendations about reform. And essentially, one of the things that was brought forth that, you know, the city tried to suppress and was not interested in was the Civilian Complaint Review Board. And so many community members were sort of like, we really need this. You know, at this point, you know, we just had a police shooting that you know ended in death. But honestly, a lot of the details are, are very sketchy. None of the investigations have gone forward. There's not going to be any justice. Like what we need is a separate, you know, civilian oversight structure. And quite frankly, the city was not interested in doing that. And, you know, I literally was 
was in meetings with the mayor where it was like, oh, you know, we feel like that model might be adversarial. Like, what does that mean? You know, already the police are adversarial <laughs> to community members, right? So I think that if anything, you should be thinking about how we can kind of like level the playing field so there's accountability. So basically, I've been working with a grassroots initiative, Next Step Forward, to highlight stories of police misconduct in New Rochelle, because what became clear during some of the community meetings was that there is very deep complaint suppression, that the police, as it is now, there's no online system to file complaints, and you have to show up to the police station, which is like, I mean, if you had a complaint, particularly one that's really like, you know, something egregious or that you're afraid or what have you, you don't want to go to that place physically in person to be seen. Yeah. And so they don't have an online complaint system, but also it's sort of like, it's really suppression because one, a couple of people talked about going actually, you know, having the, you know, the nerve and the courage and the ability to go down there and literally being talked out of their complaint or the sergeant on the desk sergeant will tell you, mm, you know, that complaint, eh, not really worth it. Not going to file it. Not good enough. Like what? That seems so, you know, completely biased and really not good enough. So, you know, they were telling us like, oh, you know, the online complaint system will be enough. Clearly that will not be enough, right? Because if you can ignore people, you surely can ignore emails or whatever kind of system you set up on the computer to just hide them away or, you know, throw them away or what have you. So that's why I really wanted to kind of like encourage community members to, you know, give us complaints, anonymous or not, so that we can kind of share them on social media and uplift and amplify And what I found really being the main person communicating with people is that there's such deep fear of even retribution that people don't want to come forward anonymously, that people who have previous criminal backgrounds or were formerly incarcerated have been targeted. You know, they are given excessive tickets. They, you know, probably in the last 10 years or so, maybe unjustly arrested. I mean, just, you know, searched unfairly. And Nourishell, you know, being part of Westchester County, which is a very wealthy county right outside of New York City, you know, has quite a lot of white people who surely do not experience that same kind of thing, even in Nourishell on the north end. So that disparity is just really mind blowing. I think in particular, the police union president pushed back against the introduction that had been created by the mayor and some of the council members around the form plan that just kind of acknowledged you know, that there is bias against communities of color, you know, in different aspects and institutions across the city, across our nation, including policing. And the police union chief was kind of like, this is ridiculous. There are no statistics. There's no evidence. You know, if this was the case, there would be complaints. And it's like, how dare you say that? You know very well, you won't let anybody complain. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. There are no complaints because you won't let anyone complain. Like, this is gaslighting. (laughs) Like, I know this is gaslighting. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So I actually wrote an op-ed for the Black Westchester about that, about like the gaslighting that's happening around that. So that's been really important to me and really kind of, you know, really motivational to try to, you know, create change in that way. And luckily, after, you know, interview board, it's, they're going to have a civilian police partnership board to you know, do research on proposals for the CCRB, but they promised that a CCRB would be created by next year. So, I mean, there's still going to be work to be done to make sure that they really kind of hold true to actually like, you know, you, you can create these kind of boards or institutions and then like, you know, not let them have any powers. So they're essentially useless. So we'll still have to stay on them, you know, in that regard. 
but it definitely is, you know, a win for us. Oh, that was so long-winded. No, that's awesome. I love how you're so involved in so many different things. It's really clear, especially the passion that you use to talk about the things that you're working on, the things that you're interested in. You're clearly finding different ways to pursue your passions, to have impact on the communities that you care about and to pursue like various research interests. I am very amazed. And I separately outside of this podcast, we'll have I will circle back and ask you many questions because I'm starting a postdoc in the fall at Notre Dame, but it's very important to me to kind of still do my other work. And so continue to produce scholarship Mm -hmm. and like, you know, advance my research and publications, but, you know, still do cohort systems work, maybe still do some like speaking and maybe moderate influencing here too. So I will definitely separately reach out to you about doing everything because you seem like you're doing a whole lot, but you don't seem stressed (laughs) and it seems as if you're making progress on everything. So that's awesome. So let's turn a little bit back to the doctoral program journey. You had mentioned earlier that you had kind of accidentally landed on the doctoral track by kind of discovering these paths to professoriate programs. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about your time in college. How did you kind of end it up on the doctoral track? Sure. So the very first thing that happened was that, honestly, I think I was trying to show someone how to get to the gym at Hunter College. And so I went to Hunter College in New York City and was in like the Honors College. And I was showing someone literally just how to get to the gym. I knew because I played volleyball, like really, really low, below ground. But anyway, they're having some sort of fair. And I happened across a table that was the McNair Scholars Table. And the assistant said to me, do you want to get a master's degree or do you want to go to graduate school for free? And I was like, Hart, did you say for free? Oh, for free is my favorite price. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, yeah, I guess I do. You know, thankfully, I was able to you know, go for college for free in terms of being a part of the CUNY Macaulay Honors College. So, I mean, I, why pay for tuition, right? Why do it if you don't have to? Why? <laughs> so I was like, okay, tell me more. So I joined the McNair Scholars and they really kind of were helping prepare you to try to go into professoriate and, you know, get a PhD. Then I, and they really were aggressive, a little too aggressive, but they were very aggressive about doing summer programs. So I applied to all kinds of like university summer programs, like MIRAP, which I don't remember what it stands for, the Big Ten, which is kind of like your big public universities, like University of Maryland, my area going for my PhD, and like Michigan, all those places, they have like an alliance or whatever. And what I ended up doing was a leadership alliance, and I did my first summer at Stanford. Did you go to Stanford? I didn't go to Stanford, but I'm also a leadership alliance alum. I went to Columbia. Oh, wow, look at that. The leadership alliance, yeah. Awesome, yeah. I did a leadership alliance two years in a row, actually. So I did my first Sophomore summer, I did Stanford. And then the next summer, I did Princeton. And then, because, you know, I'm like, you know, why why not do it all? I applied for the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship, which is like a similar program, except I think really just private, you know, Mellon funded, whereas McNair, I think is government funded the trio. So I did my last year in Mellon. And it's funny, I was really ambivalent about what I was going to do after college. And I had this professor, I actually just recently Zoomed with him. He was like, your CV looks better than mine. Like, you're going to apply to grad school, right? Like, he was like... I mean, yeah, you can't do three summers of research and then just not do anything else. <laughs> I know, right? Everyone's kind of like, so you're going to get it, right? Like, this is this is what's next. And I was like, I mean, I guess. So, you know, Mellon was much more flexible with us, but McNair, unfortunately, my McNair 
at my university was a little bit too aggressive. They were like, you have to apply. <laughs> like, you have no options. And so I was like, all right, I guess if I have to, I was like, I just was like, I'll just apply to the top 10 PhD programs in African-American literature. And honestly, I expected to get into none of them. And then I was like, then I'll just, you know, figure out what's next. Mellon pays for tuition for two years. So I was like, oh, you know, I can get them to pay for a fifth year and maybe I could just take classes and coast and then, you know, just kind of like figure out what I want to do next. But then I got into University of Maryland and it was the only school I got into. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I was like, oh, I guess I have to go, right? Like, <laughs> really, that's really what happened. And I really was not like psychologically prepared to move from New York. I, you know, love New York love being with my friends, you know, and I just was not really ready. But, you know, I really had no other post-college plans. So I moved. And it's funny, that first year of grad school, I hated it. And I spent so many weekends in New York. People used to always be like, do you, did you really move? <laughs> a lot of time on my friend Nicole's futon in Harlem. Like I, I spent a lot of time not being in Maryland. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, and then from there, I'm somebody who's very, I guess, like goal driven and I like to finish things I start. So I think from there, I was very much like, come hell or high water, like y'all going to give me this degree. (laughs) Like, I'm not, I don't believe in. (laughs) Honestly, by the time I finished the degree, you know, PhDs are hard to finish. And part of the reason why they're hard to finish, I think, is that, you know, it can just be so competitive. And also I think there's this culture of like, people might feel like low self-esteem and it almost becomes this sort of like cyclical feeding process where I think if you feel doubtful of yourself or your mentor doubts you, then you both just are cycling doubting, you know? And I think you've got to be able to be like, okay, you know, maybe I messed up. Maybe I didn't do great this time, but I'm going to come back better and I'm going to prove to you I'm going to come back better. And you, you know, you need to believe me that I'm going to get this done to do. And I think that's the thing that can really make or break, like, you know, finishing because I mean, I had a couple of blips in my program, but at the end of the day, I was like, I'm going to (laughs) finish. Like I didn't start this to, you know, to just waste my years and then end up with nothing. So tell me what has to be done and I will do it. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and if you're not on my team to like, you know, support me for me to finish, let me find out who it is basically. You know, you got to find your allies who are going to support you, who are going to help you get through. And that can be one of like the most important things. Absolutely. Yeah. We talk a lot in cohorts. This is about the importance of choosing a program not based on the name of the school, but based on who will advise you and guide you through your program because that. Right. I think I can say confidently, like that's the number one thing like that will make or break your experience, what kind of mentorship and advising that you have. So on that front, how did you identify mentors and did you have any black female mentors? I really didn't have any black female mentors, honestly. It's okay. I didn't either, (laughs) but we still made it. We still made it. We, we did. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that part, I will say that my, that is actually part of one of the reasons why TCU really pulled me. I mean, my mentor, Stacey McCormick, now is so amazing, so responsive, so helpful, so, you know, just interested in, you know, being like, oh, the issues that we know, or let's talk about these things. We meet every other week, which is, I think, pretty frequent. (laughs) She responds to all of my messages. It's really, and I just had this sense that if I were to go there, I would get this mentorship that I had never had. And that too was what was like, wow, (laughs) 
this feels so, you know, because honestly, I had really written off academia. I was like, eh, I don't know about you, academia. Like, <laughs> I was like, I'm just, you know, I have all these other skills. I'm pretty sure I can get a job doing something else. And that's what I'll do. And, you know, then this poster came and I was like, oh, you know, maybe we'll see. You know, maybe I can rethink it now that I'm kind of a little bit away from the trauma <laughs> that was trying to, you know, finish. But yeah, I mean, that mentorship piece can be so important. I think that is or can be some of the downside of some of these pipeline programs. And I, maybe they've gotten better, or, you know, every, I'm sure every kind of like program and every institution is different. But I feel like mine, you know, the bottom line is we need to get people to be PhDs. And it wasn't so like, oh, what's best for you? And let's help you, you know, explore and all that kind of stuff. So I really just kind of threw myself into doing it without even thinking about like, who am I going to work? I mean, I, I knew to put in my statement, you know, to these schools like, oh, you know, this professor does this work and this matches my ideas. But I really had not thought of it as like, oh, you're really like mentoring and training me to come into a career. Because, you know, I was thinking like, this is just more school and I'm good at school. I wasn't thinking like, oh, this is me really like choosing a career and trying to find a mentor to open the door and give me connections and really like you know, welcome me into a community. And I think had I knew to think of it in that kind of mindset, I would have really, you know, thought about things so much differently. And um, I mean, I, I even remember being in one of my programs and, you know, someone telling us like, you know, never, there was one of the rules, like never tell them that you don't want to be a professor. You have to have to say that you're the idea of alternative, you know, academic careers was just not on the table at all. It was like, you're going to get a PhD to become a baby professor and to do the scholarship they do and make them look good. And that's, you know, that's what you're doing this for. And so, and, you know, you had to play the game. I think now, especially because, you know, the career job market, they're kind of like, oh yeah, lots of PhDs go do other things. We can talk about that now. Yeah. 10 years ago, it was like, you better not say you don't want to be a professor. Like, excuse me. That is so, so a hundred percent true. Yeah. Schools. I also, I don't know if someone told me or if I just felt this way, but for at least the first five years of the program, I definitely didn't feel comfortable talking about the fact that I potentially had non-academic interests. And I just felt like my program and my advisors would no longer support me in the way that I needed them to support me if they found out that I wasn't a thousand percent on board with as you said, like becoming a baby professor, like becoming the next version of who they were. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Can you talk a little bit about some of the successes and some of the challenges that you had in your program? We've already touched on a few challenges, but if there are any others that you'd like to share, feel free. I mean, I think some of the success is that, you know, I mean, just given my personality, I'm always sort of like eager to try new things to kind of like step outside the box to approach others to, you know, apply for opportunities. And I think that really benefited me in a way that, you know, others maybe didn't, were not thinking in that kind of way. I think that, you know, some people were like, okay, I should just apply for opportunities in the department and just focus on that. But I would, you know, apply to different opportunities at different institutions, all kinds of things, always kind of just looking at, you know, things that would support my growth and development. And I think that, and, you know, building this network, of different scholars. And I think that really helped me. And I don't think anyone talked about that in my program or talked about how useful that really is. Because at the end of the day, when you kind of leave your institution, have to go (laughs) sort of like be accepted by other institutions, right? You know, it's kind of like, okay, it's one thing if all of the people in your department love you and tell you you're great. But if you kind of leave outside of that space, 
and no one else is really, you know, doesn't know who you are, or hasn't, you know, heard your work or has any of those things, then that makes it kind of really hard to sell yourself. So, I mean, I think that that was one of the things that I really benefited from. Also, strangely, what I'm realizing now is all of the alternative academic stuff I did that I was just doing because I've always been interested in. Now it's trendy and people are like, oh, one of the things TCU said was like, oh, you know, we were really compelled by like your public and you know, background and how, you know, we're trying to think about that for our students. Wow. I was just doing this, you know, because that's my interest. And I imagine that I was going to have all that career. Who would have thought that this might help me get an academic career in the end? Like, this is like, that's pretty crazy. (laughs) Yeah, you're so right. There's definitely a shift happening right now because a similar thing that the position I'm starting, similarly, they said that they were really interested about the work that I did outside of academia and how that could, you know, kind of rethink the way that we approach thinking, you know, because there's so much work in digital media. And I was like, really? Because I had thought that I was just kind of doing this thing on the side. (laughs) So on that note, I'd love to talk more about how you balance pursuing school, pursuing studies, while also doing so much else outside of school. So you've done grant writing, consulting, content writing, ESL, teaching nonprofit work. So how did you kind of think about your academic and non-academic careers intertwining and intersecting? And how did you frame that for yourself? I recently actually spoke at Columbia's CUSP, I think it is. I have a friend who is there who works for that program. And I was telling the students that I really have just thought about my basis storytelling, that I love stories and I'm a storyteller. And I've really just been trying to use that skill in different places to kind of like support whatever work is happening, amplify marginalized communities and voices. I mean, really you think about grants, you've got to tell a story, right, about why your work is important. Honestly, grant writing is so much similar to being a scholar, right? You've got to convince something that why you, what you're doing matters and that they should give you money. <laughs> like it's kind of really the same basis. It's just for an organization instead of an individual. In terms of ESL, that really, you know, my interest in language, you know, I spent a lot of time working at writing centers. So I was a tutor at my undergraduate writing center at Hunter, and then I was a tutor at the undergraduate writing center at UMD, and then I also was a tutor at the, you know, the graduate writing center. And after all of that, it was kind of like, I really could just consult people on how to write better, right, and kind of just proofread and edit for people. So that's kind of how I, like, really kind of developed this side business hustle, you know, supporting people writing, you know, helping them writing, how I kind of was brought on to do kind of like business communications. And, and so I've taught a couple of, it's weird. It's like I, at one point I was teaching classes at a bank, <laughs> like bank employees on like writing and stuff like that, you know, email etiquette, all this kind of stuff. So really, I think sort of like storytelling, but also, you know, language and clarity too. Like I think across any kind of writing, thinking about like, what's your main point is, what is you want the audience to take away, thinking about audience is so important all of the time and like what is the context right and really just you know moving that across different spaces i guess in terms of some of my advocacy now with social media you know i've been i've been doing that i worked for 3 years for the drug policy alliance and i was actually an administrative assistant but i had so many writing skills i was like you know if you want me to help you know write things i can and so i would like go straight op eds and that kind of gave me a lot of my advocacy background and understood how they sort of like use media to sort of push policy initiatives you know they lobbied congress so help with some of the like writing pieces that they need to put forward for the bills that they were lobbying for so yeah i mean really storytelling writing writing is the hub of so many different things and it's such a like connection but we don't talk about it 
Yeah, I think it's interesting to kind of think about what that one thing is for you, even as you're pursuing doctoral studies. Like, what is that one core skill that is applicable anywhere, inside and outside of the academy? I think that's really helpful as people are kind of thinking about, especially in this current academic job climate. I don't know if we can even call it a climax. It's like a tundra. I'm thinking about how to pursue something else. I think some people get really confused afterwards because they haven't really thought about how their scholarship can exist. Like what skills have they learned through their scholarship or what skills kind of carry through that are outside of the specific thing that they're researching. So I love that you've kind of really honed on to this idea of storytelling as being the connector of all of the work that you do. So quick question, how is your degree funded? I know that you had done all of these undergraduate programs. Were you able to secure external funding or departmental funding to finish your degree? Yeah. So I was able to secure departmental funding So I actually, I also had like a McNair fellowship that they have at UMD, which is for students who previously were McNair fellows. So I basically had five years of funding. However, the way it works at UMD is part of that. Like the first year, you're kind of just free. And then after that, the next four years, you're kind of teaching. And so you have a teaching assistantship, essentially, that, you know, gives you, that pays your stipend and you get tuition remission. And I mean, at the time, it was very difficult. I hated it because we had really taught a lot. I think by the time I finished in my six years, I taught like 12 classes, you know, wow. and we were the independent, you know, instructor of record. But in some ways too, it's like, okay, well now I have all this teaching experience and people are like, wow, like you've taught so much and taught so many different courses. Like I taught Black diaspora literature and I taught global women's literature and I taught African-American literature twice. And I taught global literature and social change. And I've taught freshman writing like seven times or whatever. So like a lot of teaching background, which is, I think also would help me sort of build out this ability to do trainings and workshops on writing and that sort of thing. And I will also say that being the DC area, you know, so close to DC has been super useful and just sort of like having opportunities and also things to sort of like strengthen even like my teaching. Like I remember I took my Black Diaspora course to the African-American Museum and that was like one of the best, you know, moments of my teaching career for sure. That's awesome. Oh man, the day that I went to that museum, it was like an out-of-body experience. It was so powerful. Definitely recommend everyone to visit if they can at some point. So as we kind of wrap up, I have two more questions. One is what are your you know future plans? You said that when you started before you got into the PhD track, you were thinking really strongly about working in the nonprofit world. I know that you currently do some work in nonprofit space, but what are you kind of thinking about if you're open and willing to share. What are you kind of thinking about in terms of like next career steps? I think I would really love to be kind of like the director of a center affiliated at a university. I think that would really bring together the both of, you know, the both worlds really well, where I'd have access to sort of like research at a university, but also could do programming and all that kind of really cool stuff. But I think that to the extent that whether or not I need to be tenured or not to do that, I think is a question to be figured out. But I think that that would be a really great kind of like ultimate endpoint is to be like some kind of director for something that, you know, like an interdisciplinary institute or something at a university. That's awesome. That's so cool. So our last question is, what is one piece of advice that you have for prospective or current Black female doctoral students? I would definitely say, you know, don't be afraid to just like reach out to others to get advice you know, and support wherever you need to get it. I think that sometimes 
Also, you know, people might get bogged down by feeling like their institution doesn't support them and that, you know, they're not getting what they need from there. And then that can kind of really kind of like spiral. But I think that you should always just be open to looking for other avenues to, you know, support you and accomplish what you need to accomplish. And that really is like one of the most important things. You don't always have to sort of like rely so much on your institution. You can find other ways to sort of you know, get the knowledge that you need or the, you know, the support that you need and just like, you know, keep that in mind. Awesome. Great advice. And one of the ways people can find support, of course, is through the Cohort Sisters community. So thank you so much, Norelle, Dr. Edwards, for sharing more about your journey with us. Super excited to see all the different things that you are working on. I'm like really curious about a couple of these articles that you said are in the works. They sound really, really interesting. And I also have you know, bookmarked already this Lakewood book, because that sounds fantastic. So thanks again for coming onto the Cohort Sisters podcast, and we appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of the Cohort Sisters podcast. If you are a Black woman interested in joining the Cohort Sisters membership community, or you're looking for more information on how to support or partner with Cohort Sisters, please visit our website at www.cohortsisters.com. You can also find us on all social media platforms at Cohort Sisters. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cohort Sisters podcast and leave us a quick review wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we'll catch you in next week's episode.